What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the E4 Explosive Podcast. And today I interview Jim Fleming or James Fleming. He is a 30 plus year professor from Colby College, uh, mainly in science and this in space and you know technology, all this stuff. Very smart guy. We talk about uh, clouds. We talk about why certain things happen. We talk about big history. We talk about the Big Bang. We, we literally talk about everything when it comes to science, technology, and space, which I've always been fascinated with, and I figured that you guys would appreciate hearing from someone who's devoted their entire life and career into this stuff. Jim has written multiple books on the subject. All those links and everything will be in the description below, obviously. But make sure you like this video, subscribe to the channel, and hit that bell notification so you get notified every single time that this mug comes on your screen, which is about every week. So enjoy this interview of retired professor from Colby College, Jim Fleming. I'll see you next time. Peace out. What's up, guys? Today's episode of the E4 Explosive Podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. They're the best in men's below-the-waist grooming champions of the world. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped just launched their fourth-generation trimmer. This guy. The Lawnmower 4.0. You heard that right. The Lawnmower 4.0. It's got a flashlight. So join over 2 million men worldwide, just like me, that trust Manscaped and get an exclusive offer just for you. You're going to get 20% off plus worldwide free shipping. Use the code EXPLICIT20 at manscaped.com. What's up, guys? This is Corey with another episode of the eFloor Explicit Podcast. And today we have Jim Fleming, who's a professor at Colby College. Um, and if you want to give them... Guys, okay. Oh, no. First of all, we're going to be talking about climate change. We're going to be talking about Superman uh all kinds of weird stuff you'll you'll know more about this in a little bit but uh can you give them a little synopsis of who you are jim and kind of like what your background is yeah sure hi i'm glad to be here with you Corey. i'm you. uh i'm in china maine not mainland china <laughs> and uh i just uh recently stepped back from teaching role at colby college where i'd been for 33 years and started what i'm calling a permanent sabbatical it's uh but I, I was a Charles A. Dana Distinguished Professor of Science, Technology, and Society. And now you just add emeritus to that logo, to that moniker. Uh, I studied uh, atmospheric science to the master's level, published my uh, master's thesis on the radiative effect of cirrus clouds, which was high level clouds in a tropical atmosphere. That was a long time ago, and it's still getting cited in the literature. Uh, and then, uh, because of a, a sort of a panic attack in our plane, I was in an instrumented aircraft from World War II era that the University of Washington owned, and it crashed and uh, smashed our instruments up. And I said, I need a new kind of way to engage with the atmosphere besides flying on a flight crew. Right. So yeah. I went to history of science. I studied history of science at Princeton, went up to Colby, and I spent my life uh, writing pretty much about the atmosphere from a humanistic uh, historical point of view, which I think is solely, sorely lacking in, uh, in a lot of the literature, a lot of it's gearheaded science. And I, I like to add the human dimension, historical human. Right. 
Yeah, no, that's, I thought that was, that part was like, when you told me, first of all, I didn't even know some of the terms you were sending me in the email, like the really? big, big history. Yeah. Cause it's like, I'm an idiot. So uh, I don't, I don't know a lot. So I'm like Googling all the stuff and then I just go down rabbit holes and I'm just like, oh my God, like well, this that, stuff is. That was my own rabbit hole to get into critiquing big history, right. but especially uh, counter proposing uh, what I call a bigger history than than the story of the universe, which is which is what's currently the genre of big history, from right. the Big Bang to yes. our current predicament. Right. That's that's the genre of big history. Right. Okay. Yeah. I didn't even know that was a thing. I just knew the Big Bang, and then the Big Bang Theory, the show. That's pretty much as far as my <laughs> knowledge of that goes. If you search for Big Bang, that's what you'll get. Is the is a popular TV show. Right. 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 So yeah, I had to read up on that. Uh, and just the universe. I mean, I, obviously I, I, I listened to, um, Oh my God, what's his name? Um, uh, uh, was it Tyson degree? How do you say his name? Um, Oh my God. Mike Tyson. Not Mike Tyson. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine Mike Tyson telling me about the universe? Hey man. <laughs> uh, I forget his name. Why I'm having cognitive issues. Um, I'm talking to too many smart people, man, but, uh, <laughs> Degrees Tyson, how do you say his name? You know who I'm talking about, man. Um, the professor is always on Joe Rogan. Um, he's an astrological person. Uh-huh. Um, professor. I'm on. sorry, it's, I'm not gonna be much help. Uh, you're, gonna, <laughs> you're gonna know who what uh, it doesn't matter, whatever. I'll figure it out. Um, anyway, so so it, it is a field dominated by astrophysicists. That's what he is. He's an astrophysicist and try to teach big history. Uh, a person would have no courses in history if the, if they're an astrophysicist. But, huh. And so, if you're a historian, you're immediately out of your out of your comfort zone, and you have to be an amateur astronomer, an amateur geologist, an amateur biologist, an amateur anthropologist to try to tell the story of humanity. And then the way they tell it, the, the, there's a a lot of books out there, but they don't have any people in them. Really. All of my books have warm-blooded people that are doing things and act, you know, actors. And ah. so our bigger history is going to put in people in the big history, some actual warm-blooded people like Charles Darwin, like uh, like Dante Alighieri, um, uh, Aristotle. I mean, we got to put people in the big history, not just uh, quirks and uh, right. and meteors and things like right. that. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Duh. No. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Mike, Neil. I mean, <laughs> same thing, whatever. I was uh, on a panel with Neil and uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. It's, that's what I'm saying. Like he, he's, you know, he's an interesting character and, and that's, that's when I think of the big bang that, you know, the, 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 the big history, all those things. It's like, yeah. that's who I think of, but you, you make a great point of like, I think of Carl Sagan, you know, the majesty of the billions and billions of stars and right. I actually got sick as a child because I thought I was just a speck of dust in a meaningless universe. And, and I thought, Oh, what's the purpose here? You know, I'm just going to, wow. I'm just going to pass out, pass away young here in, uh, in ninth grade, you know? So right, yeah. <laughs> what am I, you, you know, do you, you probably do. You, you, I don't know if you do this anymore, but I sometimes will like just really like perspective is really important. And when you talk about the human thing, it's like, damn, we're like on this rock, just flying at God knows how long or how fast and it's like the infinite, the, the galaxies, the universe is infinite, right? Is what they tell us. <laughs> if you, if you saw the onion today, it has an article that tells uh, onion approved, the scientists proved that I am the most important person. <laughs> <in the world. laughs> See, 
That's true. Well, okay. That let's talk. Today too. That's so funny. Uh, let's talk about let's talk about some climate stuff, okay? Because um, one guy that scared the hell out of me was um, uh, David Wallace Wells. David Wallace Wells. Yeah, he not a, not a, a he wrote a book about basically yeah. like what climate change, not climate control, is going to do to us. Like he was talking about New York and like. By 2050, is going to be underwater. Miami's right. going to be gone because it's a sandbar and there's nothing on yeah. it. So yeah. that like scared the hell out of me. And I was like, okay, I got to like figure my life out. Let me move to Colorado where there's like no water. There's some mountains. I'm good. So is that, is that, what, what's up with that kind of stuff? Is that kind of stuff that you know about? Oh, well, that's stuff I deal with all the time. And um, I think the motivation for the climate engineering intervention activity, maybe the motivation for you moving to Colorado was fear. Mm. And so it's, it's a discourse uh, driven by fear. And if you, if you remember uh, uh, Earth and the Balance and uh, you know, uh, Inconvenient Truth, uh, former Vice President Al Gore was pretty much a fear monger about this and right. the worst case scenarios. Um, there's others very prominent atmospheric scientists and I know, I know just about all of them personally. And they tend to fo- they tend to lean towards the hype, the wor- what's the worst that could happen, which is not a bad thing to plan for. Right. But you don't tell the public that they're all going to die by twenty. What is it? 20, 20, 2050. 20, 50. Oh, 2050. Okay. Yeah. So, I was in a, a after dinner co- uh, conversation with some geoengineers in uh, San Diego after uh, after one of our AAAS meetings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and they were they started talking after dinner about uh, uh, the apocalypse and uh, <laughs> they took a they took a straw poll. How many people think we're all going to die by 2050? And about half the table raises their hand. What? And others say uh, 2100. And other people raise their hand. And I said, I said, oh my God, what what are you going to do between now and then? Just become a hedonist, or you're going to become a, a monk, or or what? Right. What is your, you know, you're going to move to Colorado, <laughs> and. Uh, and they, they, never, they never thought about it on the personal level. It was all structural, futuristic charts of upward trending things. And I remember that one of the hosts of the meeting, very prominent uh, a female geoengineer, and she said, uh, oh, Jim, that's just the wine talking. <laughs> We're not all going to die. We just, we just talk this way, you know? Right, right. So the, the, the starting point of my recent essay was that... Um, you can't get into the climate intervention field unless you're really motivated by uh, sincere concern of uh, verging on fear. Uh, there's, I, I, I give you some quotes about people who said, uh, we all have to start mourning for humanity now because we're all going to bite the dust and there is no uh, purpose to go on. And, 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 and so there's this long dirge. It's, it's kind of started with Bill McKibben and when his book, The End of Nature. And he started talking about how nothing's natural anymore and everything's human intervention in it. And then uh, th- he came up to, to a kind of a, at, at that point he wrote the book, he said, there's not that much purpose to go on. And then he found right. a purpose, which was to, uh, to uh, try to hold the carbon dioxide content of the atmosphere to uh, 350. So he started that group called 350. Hmm. And, uh, and so I, I deal with this all the time because the, what's the popular knowledge about climate change is, uh, is that fear-saturated narrative. And it's not uh, what the atmospheric scientists are, are really doing. The, they're, they're, 
and the people that, that portray that narrative are often not uh, in any way climate modelers or climate scientists uh, or, or uh, the mainstream people that, that are doing right. the work in the trenches. Right. Like there is like concern, there is an important uh, work to be done, but it shouldn't be done uh, just with that motivation that got you to move to Colorado. Yeah, no, that's that, that. I'm so glad you said that. That makes me feel a little better because the, the fear, it is somewhat of a fear monger. And it, it's so funny you bring up Al Gore. I literally remember like after he like didn't, you know, become president, it was like, he's like, hey, what else, what can I do to stay the spotlight? And then he just went all in on this climate change thing. Okay. And he made a, another a second career out of it. Um, and you're right. It's like, he doesn't, what does he know about climate change? Yeah. So well, he it's, apparently had a course at Harvard with Roger Revelle, who was the f director at Scripps before he became a policy wonk. Right. So the, the, the answer is not that much, but he does. He did have good advisors. He did have people around him and he did uh, overestimate everything that he could put into that movie. Right. Yeah. No, the, the, the fear mongering is a real thing. And then and then you have a lot of stuff like that. What's her name? Greta Thornburg, that little German girl that okay. like, yeah, she, like stuff like that. It's like. It's, it, it's when I saw her speech and stuff like that, I'm like, man, this is like scary. Like this little girl's right. Like we need to do something about this. And then I'm like, wait, like none of these people talking about this stuff are actually doing mm -hmm. what they're talking about. So how could they possibly know <laughs> when any of this is going to happen or not happen? So, you well, know, I'm not a climate denier and, and I'm also right. not a climate name caller. And I think the conversation has devolved into this sort of post-Holocaust, mm -hmm. are you a Satan or, or are you the good guys? You know, the, the white hats and the, and the black hats, it's very much like a, a cowboy Western. And uh, that's not my experience. I got into the field of, uh, of studying atmospheric science in 1971. And I did my modeling of cirrus clouds, and it was a very much a, a, a wonderful field of, full of complexity. And then to see people kind of oversimplify it, and and, and the theme the theme of my book, fixing the sky. I, I, this this is the book that got the, a lot of stuff going in 2010, and fixing the sky. There's a technocrat pulling the levers of control. Oh wow! Make it rain is going to make. That's it a cool sky. illustration. That was a cover of Collier's magazine in 1953. Oh wow! That's awesome. 54, and, and that that's when uh, President Eisenhower had a uh, commission on weather control. So. I had done a lot of work on weather control, a lot of historical writing about uh, the, the folly of trying to make rain on demand and, and control mm. practices. And then in 2006, this big uh, conference came up and Paul Kritzen, the Nobel laureate was talking about uh, how to fix the sky. And I got invited as a historian to some of these meetings. And I thought, wow, this is really low hanging fruit for a historian. Right. And uh, I, I added a couple chapters on climate fixing to my weather control and, and showed that the two fields are not all that different. Uh, and so uh, I've been in the field for a long time and, and it's been a wonderful field to think about and to talk about, but it's also kind of, uh, you know, full of uh, nasty, nasty name calling and uh, accusations. And so it's not just fear, but it's, uh, it's demonization of the other. Right, right. So some people you call them warmists, and some people you call them deniers, and and I, I don't uh, partake of any of that of that verbiage myself. Right. Why? Why did you? 
why'd you get into stuff like that? That seems very <laughs> specific. <laughs> You're just telling me like what, you know, very specific. It's, it's great. Big, I lived on the plateau of uh, the Appalachian plateau in Pennsylvania, halfway awesome. between Penn state and, and uh, Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And these gigantic cumulus clouds would come up in the summer and, and just, I mean, I like the stars and I used to have a telescope and I'd look at this, take photographs, but these clouds, man, they just fascinated me. Wow. So I took astronomy as an undergrad at, at Penn State. And in my fourth year, I could have taken basket weaving and got a general science degree. But I said, wait a minute, I'm going to go over to this college called Earth and Mineral Sciences. And I studied um, geophysics, atmospheric science, uh, micrometeorology, and I got hooked. And, I, and I, then I went to grad school, Colorado State. Where I did, and if you can imagine, I was in I was in Fort Collins doing tropical meteorology. <laughs> wow, tropical meteorology in Fort yeah. Collins. Yeah, because the founder of the field went there from Chicago, oh. and that field was founded in the World War II, largely motivated by the lack of forecasting ability in the tropics. Wow. While we were fighting in the tropics, we were fighting the the, the war in the Pacific, mm-hmm. and they they established an institute for tropical meteorology about 1942. And then uh, that director came over to Colorado State, and then I got into it, and I was sort of flying in the, at least mentally, I was thinking like a, an ice crystal for about two years for my master's degree, and I was having radiation come back. And it was just like astronomy, except it was in the Earth's atmosphere. Right. It was radiative transfer in the, in the upper atmosphere. And then uh, got a job. I, I took high altitude training, uh, <clears throat> and I had to get the oxygen mask, and I had to do the the decompression studies and learned how what it felt like to pass out at, at high altitudes. And uh, I flew on the uh, the NCAR, National Center for Atmospheric Research. I flew on their glider project. And what, what they did is we, we, we took off in, in Leadville Airport, Colorado, again. Yeah. We came over the Continental Divide. And we found a, a dark mine tailing where we just circled and circled and circled till we got pulled up into a cloud. And these clouds were growing into uh, <clears throat> what they call cumulus congestus clouds. They were just, just short of becoming cumulonimbus thunderclouds. And, and our, our job was to keep circling and keep circling. You get sucked up into the cloud. And if you can imagine, uh, your vision goes from infinity to zero. Wow. And you're in the cloud, you're just whited out, you're collecting particles, you're collecting uh, photographs. I had a strobe camera, I had to set to the, the speed of the aircraft so we could do stop motion of those cloud particles. And then uh, we came out, pop out of the top of the cloud, and you're back to infinity. And you're going, holy crap, look at this scenery. What? And, and a blue sky up above you and, and a great big, you know, like a mountain of cloud, yeah. which I had fantasized about when I was a kid, you know, seeing them wow. come up over the mountains. That's so what fascinating. happened? Okay, so we're in a motel. It's a field project. So it's very like quasi-military. We had to take our equipment. We had to drive to Colorado from S- Seattle. Mm-hmm. And, and we were in a motel. Oh, I'm sorry, this was the NCAR thing. So we had to come up from, from uh, Boulder. And uh, the, the gendarmes, the police came to our motel uh, one evening, knocked on the door. We thought, oh, God, we're in trouble now. What do we do? Uh, you know, hide the stuff. And uh, they said, come down to the hang- hangar with us. And some yokels, locals, had thrown a Molotov cocktail into the NCAR, into the hangar and burned up the wing of the NCAR glider. God. And, I, and we were just shocked. We were standing there with a broken glider. It's probably a $2 million aircraft, you know, it was a, it was a technical aircraft full right. of equipment. 
And the set, I remember the set, one of the saddest moments was seeing that glider get cranked back up onto the, the flatbed truck and get, get trucked Taken back away. And that was the end of that project that we had really good data. We, we were not uh, intervening in the cloud. We were, we were just getting pulled up by the updrafts. Wow. And uh, the locals thought we were stealing their cloud water. We thought they thought we were weather control people. Oh my God. These people so out here are so weird, man. And that's, I, I put some of that in the, in the preface to the book, Fixing the Sky. And I thought, and, and then I had some people at grad school who were uh, military, you know, they were like Air Force majors who were taking a master's degree. And, and one of the projects was to fire a laser beam at a cloud to try to make it turn into a cumulonimbus cloud. Wow. And, and there was some really military. So I, I discovered that there was a commercial and a military angle to all this stuff that, that the commercial people wanted to make it rain for the farmers and the, and, and, and the military people wanted to weaponize the clouds. Right. And that, that, that's all in the book. And I thought, my God, this stuff is real. It's not just history. It's <laughs> lived experience here. Yeah. Uh, and then, then, we, then we had the, the, uh, the World War II bomber almost crashed in, in Seattle, like I already mentioned. So I had a lot of motivation to, to get into history, which I was, I was good at. I right. was good at humanities and I was good at science. I, and I wasn't that good at science. Really? I thought there's 3,000 other people who could run these equations, they could do the <laughs> model. It was like a, getting a little bit bored here, you know, so we were trying to make ends meet. And I thought history is more infinite. There, there's so many different angles to take and so many different things to think about. Right. So it was a much more... Uh, and then as you get older as a historian, you get sort of considered to be wiser, but <laughs> science is a young people's game. And I thought I better move into a new career, right. which was, I was at about age, um, I was about 25 when I moved. 25. Oh, I got to pick a new career. 25. I'm like, I know I was already washed <laughs> up. In that. Yeah. <laughs> so That's when you went to Colby? No, no, I, I oh. went to the I went to Princeton and did a PhD, and then I went to the Smithsonian and I worked on American history of science, That's which awesome. was uh, the history of American meteorology in the 19th century. Right. And then I got uh, a job at Colby and went up there and did a couple more things. That's awesome. And it was That's, fun, you know. Sounds so, fun. Yeah. Aside I'm from still, the the plane, still having fun and and talking about it is getting me revved up because I <laughs> I just had a two a, a month and a half kind of lull. You know, I had my Right. Big, uh, they call it retirement. I call it permanent sabbatical party. I love that. And uh, and I was feeling a little bit like, eh, I don't want to do much more. I, I, right. maybe, you know, rest on my laurels here. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, you called. So and I, then said, I said, hey, hey, Jim. <laughs> it's good. That's awesome. Good. That's um the, the whole. First of all, I'm scared of flying. So the the thought of flying into a storm cloud. What? We flew only when the weather was bad or, or the clouds were building. We were on the Pacific uh, Northwest coast and they had, at that time, they had no radar out over the Pacific. So I had to telephone by my bedside and they would call and I'd have to jump like a, like a emergency crew. I'd run to the car, drive to the regional airport, we'd get into the plane, put on the oxygen, take off. And we fly all night in the Pacific storms. Oh my God. Collecting particles and stuff. What? And, and then this, this bomber, it was a, it was a, it was a B, B-52. B-25. Oh, okay. B-25. It was a, a, a two engine, uh, medium sized bomber that had never seen action in the war. It was surplus. Wow. The, the university bought it. 
And then late at night and early, early in the morning, we'd try to go up into that cirrus level. We'd try to climb as high as we could. And we were all beat up and, you know, I'd never had any breakfast and we were just bouncing around and we'd go up there and collect some ice particles. Mm -hmm. And that time when we came down, we uh, clipped off the top of a pine tree with our particle collectors. And uh, I, I yanked a branch, you know, about a two inch branch out of the particle collector. And I said to the principal investigator, I said, why in, in, in the world are we going up to that altitude late at night when we're all sick and right. we're all tired? And it says, well, the fuel was low and the plane is lighter. And the Air Force has a contract with us to collect ice crystals at high altitude. It was a, a missile nose cone abrasion study to see if if incoming rockets from the Soviet Union would survive passing through cirrus clouds. What? Imagine shaving with a sleek, well-designed, optimized trimmer that makes shaving time your favorite time. I'm one of the first people to use the Lawnmower 4.0 for Manscaped, and let me tell you, the craftsmanship on this goddamn thing is insane. It will chip away at all that down there. Trust me. I'm talking from personal experience. I use the, the Lawnmower get a little, uh, little little trimmy trim trim and then i follow up with the ball deodorant let me tell you if you like to go on hikes if you like to just go outside and it's sweaty or it's hot out swamp ass is non-existent i could not go anywhere without the ball deodorant i travel everywhere with it it is a lifesaver trust me manscaped engineered the ultimate groin and body trimmer by focusing on intelligent functionality and a grooming experience you'll never forget. The fourth generation trimmer also features a ceramic blade to reduce the risk of accidents. And thanks to their advanced skin safe technology, I feel way more comfortable shaving my boys. The upgraded trimmer also includes an on and off switch that can engage a travel lock. It also gives you the ability to turn on and off the 4000K LED light so you can get a more precise shave. The Lawnmower 4.0 even allows you to cut through that hedge with more guard lengths with sizes one through four. Oh yeah, hey, did I mention um, wireless charging? That's fucking crazy. The new wireless charging system uses electromagnetic induction, which allows the battery to last way longer than it used to. Man, listen up. If you've been using the same nut trimmer on your face, you've been doing it all wrong. I don't know about you, but I don't want to end up with pubes in my mouth. It's time to get your own ball hair and body trimmer with Manscaped and make me time the best time. And trust me, you'll enhance your confidence if you got some nice smooth boys down there. Get 20% off plus for shipping when you use the code EXPLICIT20 at manscaped.com. Trust me, your balls will thank you. Exactly. And I, said, I, I, was, I was, you know, somewhat countercultural. And I said, to hell with that. We, we almost wrecked. And you're telling me I'm, I'm working for the Air Force to yeah. support the success of a nuclear war or something. Oh, my God. You're a spy. I, I didn't even know it. I wrote a very eloquent letter of resignation. And I said, I'm moving off to higher ground. Yeah. Other things, you know, which right. was, was the history of science. Wow. And then Princeton would take people. I didn't have any history as an undergrad. I just had like these big, big ideas. And they said, we'll take people who are good at science or good at history and we'll fill in what, what's missing and, and turn you into a historian of science. So it was a wonderful program to get into and it was just right for me. Right. That's fascinating, man. That's crazy. So you were doing <laughs> stuff. You didn't even know that why you were doing them. 
at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was motivated partly by fear, like you were saying. Yeah, no. <laughs> that's crazy. And then um, I found out the really fearful stuff is trying to, you know, pass your exams and the history of everything at, at a big university like that. It was really, yeah. it was really a, an, an interesting time. I had just, I'd just been married. But when I, when I interviewed for, um, I interviewed for the uh, graduate school there. Uh, the professor said, "What do you? What do you? What's your goals?" And I said, "I want to be a grandfather, and I want to be a philanthropist." Wow! And at the time, I was not yet a father. We were married, but I wasn't a father. Right. And I was broke. <laughs> <laughs> so now I have three grandchildren, and I'm able to give some part of my income away. That's amazing. I'm not a philanthropist in a big sense, but I'm able to give some stuff. But in your in work. in your own sense, and 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 that's pretty cool that like at that age you were kind of that probably took them off a little bit of being like huh that's a that's an interesting thing to say i think yeah. at that age yeah. I, you know because most of the answers to those questions were more operational and yep. i want to be a great historian at this great university kind of mm -hmm. bullshit. yeah right exactly that's fascinating that's awesome man um <laughs> let's i want to talk two more things about uh first of all the paper you sent me the the excuse us while we fix the sky Right. But first, I want to I want to break down a little bit like big history, if that's OK. Sure. OK, so it, correct me if I'm wrong. The universe, the solar system and Earth. And I'm just reading off of the Internet. Life, humans. Yeah, yeah. Thresholds, right? And the future. Right. Yeah. Threshold. Yeah. Yeah. They like to portray this whole thing as sort of a, you know, it's, it's just a, almost an inevitable path from the Big Bang to the formation of molecules, to the formation of planets, to the formation of geological strata, the emergence of life. It, it's right. the big stories of geology and evolution and astronomy all lumped together. And then they add some things about the, the Paleolithic and the Neolithic and the Industrial Revolution. And that, that's about all it is for humans is, is group activities that happened I mean, the, 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 a book by David Christian called something like Big History, it's 550 pages and there's about 35 pages on humans. That's it? <laughs> I'm thinking, oh my God. <laughs> so we've had, we had two summer seminars we ran here at Colby with really bright undergrads and lots of people that wrote books. And uh, it turns out that critiquing this approach is very simple. It, one of my friends called it like shooting fish in a barrel. So the critique, I, I have this thing, I call it uh, how easy it is to critique something. I, I, I was referring to a climate model. It's easy to critique a climate model, but very hard to construct one. Right. And it's very easy to critique this uh, genre of big history because history is supposed to have an arc. It's supposed to have a, you know, like a beginning, a middle, an end, and then possibly an epilogue or a new beginning. And this this field doesn't have an arc. It, it, it ends with us. It, it's like... Uh, I called it the new, uh, the new, uh, uh, not even Copernicanism. Is it the new, the new uh, geocentrism? Right. It puts the focus back on the human condition in the 21st century, after all of these eons and and millennia and and un, un, unimaginable time periods. It all comes down to here. Hmm. So the environmental historians have, uh, some of them have jumped onto this, and tried to make it their big story. Uh, it, it, the, the first article of this was written in the, about 1990 by David Christian, and he said uh, it, it was in the Journal of World History, which had just gotten started. And he says, you guys think world history is big, all these cultures and all these different histories of Indonesia and, and the, and the, and the uh, Indian Ocean and all that stuff. 
well, I got something bigger for you. I got a big history. Right. And we, we figured this was real hype. This is real hype. Really? Because there's no historically motivated uh, people in it. And so we, we, we jokingly decided to sort of de, de, uh, de develop it into what we called uh, a bigger history. The, the big his, bigger history would have actual case studies of people that thought about big things. Right. And you can imagine uh, what, would, what would big history look like before 1965, just to be recent. With humans or in general? Just how would you write it? There would be, the, the point is there would be no Big Bang. I was going to say, there's nothing, yeah. I was just going to say, there's like... There wasn't a theory of the Big Bang yet. Right. So you couldn't write from the Big Bang to the, the present. Huh. Uh, what would big history look like in uh, 1858, before, before Darwin published The Origin of Species? It wouldn't have any evolution in the history. Right. And so the, the biggest critique was that this history was based on our current understanding of modern Western science. Oh. And what happens is that historians of science see science as a, of a, as a process, as a moving stream, not as a given. But the people who practice big history took science as their storyline, as their narrative structure. And what we know today is what is always true, according to the big histories. And we thought, that's not right. <laughs> you know, right. That's not the way to do it. And so we go back to, I have a book here. I have a, I have a book about Dante and his uh, philosophical world, the, the cosmological and philosophical world of Dante. Yeah. And he was, a, he was in a way a big historian. He was trying to put uh, Christianity together with what he knew about cosmology in, in like the, the 13th century or something right. like that. So that's the kind of uh, counter proposals we're writing right now, things that are different than the uh, the narrative of big history. Right. So you're trying to like, not so much disprove it, but just kind of like critique it to where like, like the real placeholders of what they should be, not what this says. Right, right. It should be um, instead of 5% humans, it should be 95% humans. Right. And, and there is a good project that was done in the 1970s, the Columbia History of the World. <clears throat> it, it starts out with a little bit of cosmology for about the first 30 pages. And then the rest of it is pretty much world history woven together into a big story about humanity. That was 1970. And now we have it reversed. We have it 500 pages of uh, cosmology. And then no and then pages. Little, yeah, a little bit about humans. That's fascinating. You won't find any individuals in, the book, in their books. So Why is it because that's, that's a more popular sell? Is it easier to explain? Is it, you know what I mean? Well, it's, it's got, it's got, uh, and here's the commonality that, that behind this is the money of Bill Gates. He, he heard uh, David Christian talk about these big storylines and he said, every kid in the, in the world should learn this stuff. And, and it's true. You should broaden your horizons. Right. I mean, I broadened my horizons by having, you know, three degrees in science and history, <laughs> right. but they, they want to do it in two semesters. And so, uh, there was a college in California called the Dominican College of Jesuit College of California, something like that. And they had two semesters on biblical history as a requirement. They took away that requirement and they put in two semesters of big history because it's like a bigger story than the Bible. You know? Right, right. And so it's kind of funny because they move from a, and what happens is because they are, I think they were Jesuits for so long, they have sort of a catechism when did the universe start? The universe started 13.8 billion years ago. Mm -hmm. How did the universe start? The universe started in a big bang. And so they, they have kind of a, 
and so the curriculum, the, the pedagogy of it is very sing-song kind of answer the right question. You can move on to the next unit. Right. You could, it's easy to put it on the internet. Uh, it's easy to make it into course modules. And, TV and Bill, show. Gates, Bill Gates is big time behind it. He's also big time behind uh, climate intervention. Yeah. He yes. has a patent on redirecting hurricanes. He's supporting people who want to do nanoparticles to dim the sun. That's not dim sun. That's dimming the sun and uh, put. And so I call I call that part of his of the work uh, uh, turning the blue sky milky white with sulfate particles, or turning the blue ocean milky milky uh, soupy green. I guess I call it. And there's a lot of heavy-handed intervention techniques that would not be coming from um, the developing world. They wouldn't be coming out of India or or wouldn't be coming from Malaysia. They would be coming from Lawrence Livermore hmm. or they'd be coming from a government lab. And they, they wouldn't even be that democratic. They would, they would be imposed. There's a group at Harvard that wanted to sh uh, do a small experiment, but shoot uh, uh, sulfate particles up into the stratosphere. And so they, they chose Sweden this last summer. They chose Sweden as one of their test sites. And they got roundly shut down by the Sami, the native uh, reindeer herders. So you're not going to shoot our, you're not going to shoot at our sky with that stuff, or, wow. or take an airplane up there and pollute it. You know, we we like our blue sky. We, and I've heard I've heard uh, climate engineers talk about, well, people don't look at the sky anymore. I'm looking at the sky right now. We're getting a nice sunset. Uh, they stay inside. They look at TV. The, the city lights are already uh, blocking out the Milky Way. So who the hell cares? Yeah. I've heard these kind of arguments. So so climate engineering would be the end of uh, of uh, visual astronomy. It would be the end of a lot of things, including our relationship with with in nature. And uh, and so uh, on the other hand, uh, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of you know like foolish. Uh, uh, talking about this kind of stuff, like we can control a, a, a global system with uh, with a, a million variables. Mm -hmm. Well, you have to have a little humility because you can't even predict the three three body problem. You can't even control three variables. Right. If you've ever played around with an orbits kind of thing, you, it gets disrupted by the third body. And so, uh, so we, we just have. I mean, so the main theme. I, I, I know I'm talking too much, but. The main theme of this work was hubris, that people were overarchingly sure of themselves that they could intervene and right. control, whether it's the rainfall, they control the temperature, they can control the climate. It was all kind of a, a big play on hubris, which is what the theme of the book. Right. No, that, that all makes sense. And it to, kind of to your point of like, you know, <laughs> people doing two semesters of something, thinking they know better than people that actually do it that's kind of what frustrates me a little bit not that i know anything about this industry or or you know the universe stuff like that but i i tend to get caught up in it too where it's like oh that person sounds really smart what they're saying let me just believe it whether it's not not that it's not true but it's just there's other ways to look at it like what you're explaining right now which I think is is great. And, and I think people need to understand other ways to look at it. So what would you say to someone who's dumb like me that is trying to understand the big history? And what would you like kind of like maybe push me towards to look at or to try to understand in a different way? Well, I, 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 I can't say that dumb like you at all. But I had really I had uh, great research assistants. I taught a course on this called uh, 
big history critique and counterproposal. I took the undergraduates and they're just, you know, normal college undergraduates at you know pretty high high level of, of learning, but they didn't hear anything about this. And we took them through the uh, the, uh, the the we had them read it. We had them look at thresholds. We had to we asked them what they thought of it, and they started uh, without hesitation to start to find cracks in the narrative. Um, I, oh. I encourage them to read with a uh, if it's a library book. I encourage them to read with post-it notes and to critique things and to think about the way the author's making their moves. And if it's my own book, I do it with a kind of a, a, a erasable pencil and I, I'd make marginal notes. Mm -hmm. And uh, and to think, to not just to, to think critically, but also to read carefully and find ways where they can intervene into the narrative and they can make their own in input. So a lot of people idea. read for recreation and they just accept what they're reading, but right. develop a critical eye to it. And then the hard part was to think about another, another way to do it right or to start writing about it. So they all start writing what I call think pieces and then they write their papers and then they ex exchange them with one another. And it's sort of like an educational process. Right. So they were finding basically like holes, holes in there that, that, that they didn't even know really because they have no experience. They're just normal grad students. So that they were able uh, to kind of undergrad that. students. Oh, undergrad. Oh, undergrads. Okay. Yeah, all right. I, I had them give presentations on people like Darwin and, and people like Francis Bacon and people like Dante. And they just dove into it two by right. two. They, they took on that week's reading and they helped the rest of the class get up to speed. Wow. And then we'd ask, you know, what kind of holes in this storyline did you find and how could we do something different? Were they right? Or was it more of like an opinionative thing? It wasn't right or wrong. It was better argued or, or less documented or, or you know, okay. strong argument. That's the kind of teaching I was doing was, uh, does, it, does that make sense? You know? Right. Versus right or wrong. Yeah. I like that. Cause it's kind of, it leads you kind of like your own, find your own answer to things. Yeah, you know the, what I mean? the fun was we, and there's right in class, we did a, uh, there was a Twitter conference. It was, it was during COVID lockdown, and we did a British Society for the History of Science Twitter conference. And our, our task was to write 12 tweets. You know, these are the short, I don't know how many characters you get. 140 now. Okay. <laughs> it was, they were long tweets. I have them somewhere. I don't have them right here. But we had to write 12 tweets that covered our field and share them in advance. And then we got online and uh, everybody in the conference, there was a couple hundred people were tweeting back at us. About, oh, that makes sense. I never thought of it that way. What about this? What about that? Right, right. So we collected them all. The, the job right now is to kind of digest this stuff and put it out in a, I'm probably going to try to write a, a, a short history, a big history or something. Or um, That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's my current project which is not about clouds per se right it's more like about the what we just talked about basically yeah yeah i was trying to give you a, a sense of it but i haven't i haven't written it up i don't have any current discipline right now i'm just happy to, to <laughs> sabbatical be, uh, you're in your sabbatical <laughs> permanent sabbatical yeah so you get a pass um let's let's talk about uh chapter 24 excuse us why we fix the sky weird superman and supermen and climate intervention right what Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this, all, this all started at the Rachel Carson Center for Environmental History in Munich, Germany. Wow. And I'm a, I got invited to a conference. It was, it was a wonderful place to be. It's right next to the uh, 
it's near the Deutsches Museum. It's affiliated with another university. And, and so we're in a meeting and, uh, and I got to talk about uh, climate control. And, and I didn't want to just go back and repeat what I had had in my book uh, in 2010. Mm -hmm. This is about, I don't know what it is, 20, 2016 or 18. And, uh, and it, the, the topic of the conference was masculinities and reimagining reimagining the, uh, the the environmental narrative and and putting a critique of uh, of the sort of the masculinity in it. So the book came out, Men, Masculinities, and something else. I can't read it upside down. And Earth contending yeah. with that. I don't even know. I can't even read that. Yeah, contending with the M Anthropocene. Oh, so, yeah. So th that <laughs> and that started. I I can't get all this in an hour, but no, you're good. We also have a critique and counterproposal to the Anthropocene, which is the age of man. And uh, I'm not going to go that direction, but at, at Munich, in, at the Rachel Carson Center, I wrote a short version of this that said, uh, the climate engineers that I know and the history of meteorology that I have read has mostly been Northern, Western, masculine, uh, Norwegian, polar front, uh, heroic, and uh, and I found I found this paper on on sociology that says uh, that what we know about humanity is mainly restricted to Western sociologists studying mostly people at college campuses. Hmm. So we have a very small slice of humanity that we're basing our what it means to be human from the social sciences. Right, and that acronym for what they the authors were talking about was called weird. Uh, Western educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And these weird people are the ones doing all the interviews and, and generating all the data. And it's not the person in sub-Saharan Africa. It's not somebody being interviewed in, uh, in uh, even in New Zealand, although they're kind of Westernized. And so, so uh, I, I use that acronym to call them, to call the, uh, the, the, the people with hubris or uh, the kind of the, uh, the Superman complex that I'm going to you know, remember the movie where Superman turned the worth backwards and it's yeah. rotation to save Lois Lane. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is the uh, that mindset they had that we, we are. And, and this came directly out of uh, <clears throat> Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. I was in a conference where the, one of the guys said, uh, Oh, you atmospheric scientists, you know, you're so undereducated. We're, we're the particle physicists who develop brilliant pebbles and Star Wars technologies under the Reagan era. And we know much more about the atmosphere than you do. So there was that hubris. Right. And they, they, they had this Superman complex that technology would save us and they would be the ones that would do it under military patronage, probably, or national security ages. And so I, I, I jumped on this theme to uh, go back to my book and use some of that material, but but say that mostly uh, the men came through as uh, portraying themselves as human superheroes. There were very few women in the field, and uh, and kind of uh, manipulating the earth in in this uh, Baconian way that you need to shake Mother Nature and and seduce her and and hmm. bring her down to your level as a scientist which comes out of the scientific revolution. And I put that together with my climate engineering to wow. make thesis that uh, the field is too west. And I also had, um, one of my things was the three eyes, international, interdisciplinary and uh, intergenerational. 
And I said, the field is neither of those three, none of those three, because we're so uh, technical, we're so Western, we're so focused on, uh, on our own discipline of, of, of physics. It was all physics for some of the people. And um, there was very little humility. Right. So that became the core of that essay. Now, the fun thing was the book really just came out. I got, I'm getting a copy of my own in the mail. I have this one because I'm the editor of the series that the book was put in. But um, yeah, so, so uh, the book just came out and I immediately got an email from a climate engineer out west, somewhere near Silicon Valley. And he said, uh, you're wrong, you know, you, you're completely off. And, and I didn't want to take on a fight. So I just said, okay, thanks for your input. I'm about to take that into account when I revise it. And um, it turns out that his website is, uh, is very heroic. It's about discovering new technologies to control the planet. Right. And it was also had hints of misogynism in it. And so I thought, well, I guess I really was right. I, I didn't want to <laughs> you're spot <it>. on. <laughs> he was one of those superhero earth saving planet saving right. kind of people. And you find, you find them elsewhere. You find them with the uh, comet earth crossing cometeers and, and people that are going to um, fix the planet in different ways. And uh, we, we did a study where, where uh, I thought I brought, oh, here, we did a study with the national academies um, one was called reflecting uh, climate intervention. Oh wow! Sunlight to to cool the the planet, huh. cool Earth, and and I I was kind of proud of this because I'm the one that got this term intervention in there instead of engineering. Right. And so then we decided we decided this technique. Here's a good. Here's a better technique: is reducing carbon dioxide or capturing it and storing it. Right. So we decided to make two volumes instead of one. Right. So instead of calling it geoengineering. We called it climate intervention, which could be uh, whoops or it could be good. And right, we, right. we decided engineering was not a was too precise of a term to apply to this to this field. Yeah. So anyway, uh, that was a fun thing to do. That was the National Academy, and I was the only historian. And I thought, oh my God, how am I going to make a difference? And I did it partly by uh, bringing in this questioning uh, approach to it, rather than. Uh, rather than just accepting the, the, uh, the, the, the task, but right. Yeah. Well, that, that's kind of like, um, yeah. Intervention is a better word than engineering because engineering just sounds it's free. You can get PDFs on the internet if you go to the national. Oh, wow. Academy. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'll check that out. Do you, well, okay. Do you, how do we get more humanity into this kind of stuff then? If all, if this, you know, if we're talking about how, how do we do that? Well, <clears throat> uh, one, one way is through, uh, social science. Hmm. And uh, one way is to governance people. I, 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 was, I spent a little bit of time at the Wilson Center in Washington on policy issues. And, and a, a current Wilson fellow and I wrote a little thing about trying to govern this field, which, which doesn't exist. Uh, geoengineering is a, a misnomer. Uh, as I said, it's more like, uh, uh, I call it geoscientific speculation rather than engineering. And it's very hard to govern something that doesn't exist and mm. it could cause a lot of international friction if somebody thought like 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 the like the the yahoos that were burning up our glider you know if this happened on a worldwide level and some big nation thought some other nation was right. doing something across the boundaries big problems um, this has been written about since the 1950s that climate engineering 
could be more dangerous than a nuclear proliferation. Oh, wow. And it has about the same scale. If you're, if you're going to try to capture all the world's carbon and put it underground, where are you going to put it? How are you going to put it? Who could do it? Who has the pumps? Who has the, who has the uh, pipes? Uh, the answer is probably the oil companies, you know, right. who are motivated to do it. So it's a very interesting, I mean, it's like low-hanging fruit. It's, it's tantalous for the historian to, to try to get this stuff under control and under, under, under your, uh, under your uh, to read about it and write about it. Right. So um, I don't know, where do we go from there? I, I was able to tick off a real climate engineer. And I was invited onto a uh, an ambush pod podcast that they were going to try to surround me with real. Oh people. wow! So I turned all that down. I said, "No, nah, you know, I didn't even say anything. I just sort of said, uh, 'I'm gonna I'm gonna be uh, on sabbatical.' <laughs> yeah, yeah, take another sabbatical. <laughs> well, I'm I'm living in China, Maine. You know, we have a population of our town of about a thousand people. Wow. Uh, you know, it's on a it's it's near a, a big main lake right here and. Uh, and yet, I, I in back, you know, when this stuff is really hot, and I get invited to go to places like, you know, Germany and and, and to some of the national labs and talk about this stuff. But I, I think they might be getting tired of me. I don't know, man. This stuff's pretty. Fat. I didn't know any of this, which is why I reached out to you, and I was so fascinated by it. So I'm learning more ways to kind of look into this kind of stuff because all I, like I said earlier, is go off of is what the news is telling me, what the president is talking about whoever is trending right now in climate change and just the universe and stuff like that. But yeah, man, one last question. I'll let you get out of here. Um, give me like a, what do you, what do you think as far as we started off with David Wallace Wells scaring the hell out of me and making me move right, to Colorado. Right. What's your kind of prediction of what's going to happen to us with climate change in regards to that? If we keep doing what we're doing. Well, I, I've, I've told my students this too. They're between 18 and 22 uh, all the time. They're always that age. And uh, I told them, you know, like I said back in my history interview, I said, you know, if, if you're so motivated, go on out and have children. Aspire to have grandchildren. Build your life. You know, uh, humans are uh, resilient. They're not going to sit in Miami Beach until the waves crash over their head, you know. Right. There's adaptation. There, the, one of the good things is in our reports for the academy was mitigation. I think they're going to be cleaner, quieter cities. There are already cleaner, quieter cars, better carburation. Uh, there's all kinds of things to be more efficient. And if you want to do efficiency, 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 this is the way towards more stable uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Don't reduce everything to carbon dioxide. We have a tendency to reduce everything to one Ma you know, magic molecule like we right. did plutonium, you know, the nuclear molecules were the ones that were the center of the history of physics so much. And then there was DNA and now there's CO2. And, and my advice was to, uh, to stay active, both physically and intellectually, but don't give, don't go into this, uh, into this despair, you know, in, in the first part of this essay, I had, uh, I had a, 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 a philosopher, he's saying, we, should, we need now to allow ourselves to enter a phase of isolation and- Hopelessness. You got it in front I of you. Yeah, yeah, and short so, to grieve. Short to grieve. We need to learn how to grieve. And another says, we need to learn how to go extinct in 20 generations. <laughs> oh. You know, I've, that's not right. That's just not right. 
It's scary. Hope, hope springs eternal, and don't don't buy the the you know I'm the I'm the uh, most important person in the in the field kind of stuff, but keep working at it. Um, you got a long future ahead of you, and it, it might not all be. In, it might be happy in Colorado. It might be elsewhere too. Right. Awesome. Man, I love ending it on a positive <laughs> note. Thank you so much, Jim. I appreciate yeah, you coming up on. There. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate that. It's my pleasure. And thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. And anything else you want to say? What's, what's the name of your book again? And can you can you find it on Amazon? Because now I have to go get it. So Which book? The one that you, the 2010. Oh, that's called Fixing the Sky. Yeah, that's everywhere. All right. Fixing the Sky, Columbia University. All right, cool. I'll put the link to the, is it on Amazon? And I have an Amazon author's page. You just put in James Roger Fleming instead of okay. Jim Fleming. I'll I'll put that in the description of the video and everything and all that stuff. So I, once again, get some new, new books for you too. Huh? I'll try to write a new one for you too. Yeah. Write, write something in, in the, in the time that this comes out, which will be out in a couple of weeks. Um, Let me know when it's up. I will I'll send it to you, but that's another episode for the E4 explicit podcast. And we'll see you next time. Get 20% off plus free shipping. When you use the code explicit 20 at manscaped.com. That's right. 20% off plus free shipping. When you use the code explicit 20 at manscaped.com. Unlock that confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped.